Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. Physical birth is one thing. A spiritual birth is something entirely different. And Jesus knows that if you're going to go to heaven, you must be born again. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are currently in our series on evangelizing, and today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Sharing Christ with Others. Today, we will examine the world's greatest truth and the world's greatest text as Dr. Brogy reminds us that we should not confuse information with unbelief. Please join us in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16, as we continue. Proverbs twice over in the 14th and in the 16th chapter. God only does that a couple times in all the Proverbs where he repeats himself twice, for there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And so our salvation, our ticket into heaven, into the kingdom of God, is we must be born from above. Again, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's your first birth, your physical birth. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's your birth from above. That's your second birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Physical birth is one thing. A spiritual birth is something entirely different. And Jesus knows that if you're going to go to heaven, you must be born again. So for this reason, Jesus tells Nicodemus, look at verse 7, do not be amazed, don't marvel, don't be blown away that I said to you, you must be born again. He's showing him his greatest need if he wants to be included in the kingdom of God. You say, well, pastor, I don't totally understand the second birth. Well, neither do I. There's a certain mystery to it. I'm going to tell you in a second how you can get it and how you can enjoy it, but I don't fully understand it. Look what Jesus said, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's not by accident that the Greek word for wind and the Greek word for Spirit is identical. Somewhat of a play on words that Jesus is giving us. It's a powerful comparison. Both are invisible, neither can be controlled by man, and to this day, science admits it doesn't fully understand the wind. Yet the work of the wind, the effects of the wind, the work of the Spirit, the effects of the Spirit can be seen by all. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, tell me where the wind comes from and where it goes. You hear it, you feel it, but you don't understand it. So don't try to figure all this out. And by the way, he adds, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. They don't understand us. We're like the mystery of the wind. Why? Because a natural mind does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't comprehend them. Why? Because they're spiritually comprehended or understood. So you get saved, and all of a sudden your friend says, what's wrong with him? What happened to him? He's different. I don't like the the difference. Sometimes they like it. Sometimes they don't. Now, I can't fully understand it, but again, I can tell you from what Jesus said how you can get it and how you can enjoy the benefits. But if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, look, there's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of heaven and there's the kingdom of the condemned. 
There's the kingdom of light and there's the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of Satan. There's the kingdom that will land you in heaven and there is a kingdom that will land you in hell. There is no in-between. Well, Nicodemus, notice verse uh, 9. He doesn't get the message fully yet. Nicodemus said, well, how can these things be? Rabbi, how does this second birth take place? By the way, he's moved from where he was. If you notice in the first question, he says, well, how can a man be born twice? But now he's underscoring the possibility of this second birth. How does this process that brings about the new birth take place? Notice Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Now, the old English said, are you a teacher of Israel? Uh, The New King James corrected it more precisely. Those guys were learning Greek when they wrote the 1611 translation. The, The languages of the Bible had basically not been studied for centuries. The Bible was in Latin. All the terms and the stained glass behind on this pulpit in front, they're Latin terms. And they represent issues of the Protestant Reformation. But the New King James says, the teacher, correctly so. He's not saying, are you a teacher? It's articular. The article is very important, as you know, in Greek. Jesus didn't say, I am a way. He said, I'm the way, meaning there's no other way. Are you the teacher of teachers? The big shot that you are and you don't understand. Are you the most reverend doctor, PhD, Nicodemus? And you don't get this? Now, he could have gotten it. He should have gotten it if he had studied the Scriptures carefully. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Remember, up until this time, Jesus has not told Nicodemus how to get the new birth. He's just underscored the necessity of the new birth. It's not a nice thing to be born again. It's necessary if you want to go to heaven. So he's silenced at this point, and the dialogue ends, and a monologue begins in verse 11. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. By the way, that's the third time he said, truly, truly, verily, verily, the old English says. The Greek says, amen, amen. When God says that in Scripture, it's like, hey, put your spiritual antennas up. What I'm about to say is super important. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. I hope you notice the use of the plural verbs in the English Bible four times, in the Greek Bible five times. We speak, we know, we testify. We don't repeat it for grammatical reasons, but it says we speak, we know, uh, we testify, we have seen, and then he speaks of our testimony. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am telling you something that has already been written about in the Old Testament scriptures that you as the teacher of Israel should have known. Had he read Ezekiel carefully, had he read the prophet Jeremiah carefully, had he read even the opening chapters of the Genesis where God makes a promise of a second birth of salvation, he would have known that there is a need to enter into a new covenant. And he should have known that. So as a teacher, he should have known these things. Then Jesus said to him, and by the way, it's interesting, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you, and you goes to the plural at that point, 
meaning you people, meaning you, Nicodemus, and the Jewish people that you represent as their teacher, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you, verse 12, earthly things, and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's referring to the conversation he's just had with Nicodemus. If I've told you earthly things, and that's what he's been talking about, then how can I tell you heavenly things? Now, the new birth, it takes place on earth. But his point is, if you can't understand the basic truths that will bring you into the kingdom of God, how can I expand on the deeper truths that will tell you about that coming kingdom? You don't accept, you don't receive this testimony. By the way, don't confuse information with unbelief. You can have information and not respond to that information. The Jewish people later in this gospel in John the 12th chapter, Jesus said, while the light is among you, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. Respond that you can be born again to go back to his verbiage in John 3. And then John adds, though he was performing many miracles among them, they chose they would not believe. And then he adds, because they would not believe, they could not believe. And then he describes, quoting Isaiah the prophet, because God has blinded their eyes, God has hardened their heart, God has stopped their ears. You see, because they would not, they came to the point where they could not. And that's why there's always an urgency when we encourage people to make a decision. We're not trying to browbeat them, but nobody has the promise of tomorrow. You may be dead tomorrow. Christ may come before this service is over. You say, I don't think he'll come. He'll come in a time when you least expect. Nothing has to happen. We'll discuss this further next time for Christ to come for his church. Not to mention, the Spirit of God will not always strive with men. You don't come to Christ on your own. No one, Jesus said, John 6, can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And when you resist truth and you put off truth, you can go from I would not to I could not. And so it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the stark, naked savage or the PhD, kind of like Nicodemus, who's a pseudo-intellectual. The problem is the same. The problem is they would not believe. The problem is unbelief. If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things. Some teacher, you must be of heavenly things because you don't even get the earthly things. And the earthly things are this new birth that happens on earth. I was 18. I can still picture the room I was in. I can take you to the building I was in, the very classroom that I made a decision to call upon Jesus in my heart. It took place on earth. And unless you get saved here on earth, there's no second chances after you die. It's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Nicodemus needed to understand these earthly miracles, and especially the miracle of the new birth, if he was ever going to understand heavenly things. And by the way, being born again is not so much of getting man off earth into heaven. It's more an issue of getting God from heaven into your heart where you are regenerated and made alive, and you become a new creature. 
And by the way, let me just say the authority that Jesus says this with. Did you pick it up when I, well, I didn't read it yet, but verse 13 says, no one, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm speaking with absolute authority. No one's gone up into heaven and then come back to tell you what it was like. But I left heaven because he has no beginning or end, and he comes to earth. By the way, you hear these people say, well, I died and went to heaven. No, they didn't. They're either A, lying, or B, confused because of a lack of oxygen, or C, just downright deceived. And I've met more than, I don't have enough fingers and toes to tell you the people in, that I've shared the gospel with in 40 years who've told me they've died and gone to heaven, and, oh, really, what was it like? And they tell me, and I say, well, tell me, if I wanted to go to heaven, what would I need to do? And then they give me some answer that is so contrary to what we're going to read here in just a moment. And they think all is fine. Listen, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You don't die, go to heaven, come back. Now, you may have experienced something with oxygen deprivation or under anesthesia, but it wasn't death because when you die, the Spirit, James says, leaves the body, and you are either in heaven or in hell. And I might say there's no in-between state. Today is October the 31st, when Martin Luther nailed to the door at the church at Wittenberg 95 theses or assertions where the Roman church that he represented as a priest had departed from Holy Scripture. And his goal, of course, was not to um, uh, reject the Roman Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it. He wanted them to get right. He'd been to Rome. It was his dream to go there to the Holy City. He got there, and he couldn't believe in corruption. He couldn't believe the immorality amongst the cardinals and the priests. And he came back disillusioned, and a short time later, the Pope, because St. Peter's Cathedral, you ever been there? It's breathtaking. I mean, you go into St. Peter's, and on the floor is marked all the great cathedrals of the world. And the last one in the line is Westminster Abbey. Some of you have been there. And then you look another 30 yards to the back wall. And that's how long and how big and how massive this place is. Well, the dome caves in. The Pope needs money. So he hires a guy by the name of Tetzel, Johann Tetzel. And of course, he says Tetzel to put it in an English rhyme, though it's rhythmic in German, though I don't know German. But he says something to the effect, every time a coin drops into my chest, another soul goes into heavenly rest. So for a sum of money, instead of dying and going to purgatory, which is what the Roman church teaches, because they don't believe in sola scriptura, they don't believe that Scripture alone is the final authority. So if the Pope speaks ex cathedra from his chair on an issue of faith and morals, not everything he says, but when he speaks in an official capacity in Roman Catholic theology, it's on the same level as Scripture. So when the Pope declared in the 1850s that Mary never sinned, it became a dogma. They had been playing with it for centuries. Now it was official. When they said, well, Mary, she actually ascended right up into heaven, and you can pray to her. That's in the same authority as Scripture. They taught, not absent from the body, present with the Lord, absent from the body, unless you're a saint. You can't be declared a saint until after you die, and then they determine if you were really a saint, that you go to purgatory for a period of time. 
So Tetzel, for a sum of money, sold indulgences. And so people thought, I'll buy this full plenary indulgence, and I'll be guaranteed no matter how I live, that when I die, I'll go right from earth up into heaven. Absolute heresy. The Scripture is clear. When you die, one second after you die, you're either in heaven or you are in hell. Now, there are many things about the new birth that are somewhat mysterious, but have you had it? Again, where did you put yourself on that scale of zero to 100 as to how certain you are that you've had the new birth? Are you 25, 50, 75, or 100? And if God were to say to you, well, tell me how to get the new birth, you say, do you have to know how to get the new birth to be saved? Of course you do. God's not asking you to believe something you don't understand. He's unfolding it for Nicodemus. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus. So Jesus wants him to understand. Look at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if you, again, have the NASB with marginal notes, you think, Moses, hey, look, I'm meeting 18 and 20-year-olds. They don't know who Moses was. And I get it. You know, 80% of the children this morning under the age of 12 in America are not in church. They don't go. They don't go anymore. Some of the kids who are coming to Awana, they know absolutely zero zippo. And I'm so thankful that God is giving us the opportunity, and many of you who are patiently trying to teach some of these children who are totally unchurched. But if you look out in the margin, oh, Moses, what's he talking about? Where's this illustration from? He doesn't use an illustration like this with the Samaritan woman in the next chapter because she's ignorant of the Scriptures. But Nicodemus, he's the teacher. He knows the Scripture. So he appeals to a common illustration. It comes from Numbers 21. Let me read it to you. Numbers 21, you can circle it out there in your marginal notes. And beginning in verse 4, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. When you speak against God's man, you're speaking against God. They didn't say, hey, God. They spoke against Moses. They spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. We're sick and tired of this manna. The Lord sent fiery or poisonous snakes, serpents that bit like fire, fiery serpents amongst the people, among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Because we've spoken against the Lord and you, intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So here they are. 600,000 men that leave Egypt, excluding women and children. Some will put it at 2 million. That's the conservative number. Some will put it at 4 million. There's a bunch of folks. The poisonous snakes are going through the congregation. They're biting the people. There's no cure. They're sick. They're dying left and right. 
They know there's nothing they can do. They can't pray harder. They can't come up with some kind of medicine. They're bankrupt. So they go to the one man who can intercede on their behalf. Now we all have the opportunity to go directly to the Lord. We don't need a priest to pray for us. Now I'm happy to pray for you, and we should pray for one another, but you can go directly to the Lord. But not at this time. Moses was the intercessor, so to speak, who went to the Lord God. Pray for us, Moses, that God might remove these serpents from us. So the answer, make a snake in the likeness of the one that killed you. Set it up on a pole. Why on a pole? Because God wants anyone who wants to look at it to be cured. God's not trying to hide salvation. He's trying to reveal salvation. He wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He desires all men to be saved, the Scripture affirms. And so Moses made this bronze snake. He set it up on a pole, and everyone who just looked instantly lived. Now, when you read the numbers account, you discover that not everyone looked. No doubt some people thought that was foolish. When we preach the good news... The Bible says to some men it will be foolishness. Brogy, he's an idiot. He's just one of those Bible-believing, thumping pastors. He's nuts. They'll say the same about you. They'll think it's foolish because that's what God tells us is often the reaction of some people. And so the Lord is making a comparison here. Just as this is true, even so this must be true. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, even so the Son of Man, he's going to be lifted up on a cross. Could they do anything? No, all they could do was believe the promise of God, and those who turned in faith and looked were instantly healed. You and I have been bitten with a different snake. We have listened to the evil one. We sinned in and with Adam. We are fallen. We are rebels by nature. And we are in the same desperate situation. And God's going to underscore here that he must be lifted up. He must be lifted up. Why must he be lifted up? Because unless the Lord Jesus is lifted up on a cross, we can never be saved. Three reasons why. And Nicodemus should have known these. Number one, because as Isaiah says, your iniquity has made a separation between you and your God. Your sin stains you. It disqualifies you. If somehow from this day forward you could live a perfect life and never sin again, you couldn't. But if somehow you could, it wouldn't erase the mess that's behind you. And so good works aren't like this big eraser that can remove the stain of sin. Number two, good works can never satisfy the penalty of sin. He should have known, Ezekiel 18.10, the soul that sins must die. For the wages of sin, and it's actually a paycheck word in Romans. Your paycheck for being a sinner is death. Look, if you commit some heinous crime worthy of death, and you ask the court for permission to do community service for the rest of your life, they'll say no, not if your crime deserves death. God says our sin deserves death, and we say, I'll get baptized. I'll get confirmed. We'll christen our little one. I'll try to keep the golden rule, but it can never satisfy the justice of God. Jesus said, I will lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one will take it away from me. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. When he was arrested, Mark says, a multitude came to arrest him, an oikos. 
Matthew says a great multitude. John says a Roman battalion. A battalion could be 600 or 1,000. He said a Roman battalion led by a Roman cohort. The Greek word is chiliarchus. We get our word chiliism from it. So we speak of the chiliistic reign of Christ. The Messiah is coming back. He's going to reign on the earth. We pray it. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to go up, but then we're going to come back. And he's going to rule and reign and keep all the promises he made in the Old Testament. The concept of the kingdom that Jesus wanted to explain in further depth to Nicodemus, but he needed to enter it before he could explain it. He needed to have new life before he could comprehend it. But the concept of the kingdom is an Old Testament truth. The length of time is given in the New Testament. So a Roman battalion led by a leader of a thousand men comes. Jesus said, whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene, and he simply says, I am. Moses is at a burning bush. He sees a miracle bush burning in the wilderness, but it's not burned up. It's a miracle bush. He approaches it, and God says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And they have this conversation. At one point, he asks your name. God, what's your name? The Jewish people are going to ask me. God said, you tell them my name is Yahweh. You tell them I am whom I am sends you today. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. It's the divine, sacred, covenant name of God. There are many names for God, many compound names for God. But the most special name of God given in all of Scripture, capital L, capital O-R-D, it's distinguished in our English Bibles, is Yahweh. Whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene, Yahweh, and what happens? They all fall back. By the way, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And that word fall back or fall down is found in one place in the Old Testament. When God pushes down the walls of Jericho, Jesus, by taking to his lips the divine name, pushes down a thousand men on his back. He doesn't say, well, we're leaving here, guys. No, he permits them to get back up. No one will take his life. He'll give it. He said, you can take me today. He loved his own to the end. He permitted those men to nail him to that cross. It wasn't accidental. It was a choice. It was not those nails that held him to the cross. He had legions of angels he could call down. It was his love, which is the third reason. One, reason number one, your good deeds can't save because they can never remove the stain of sin. Reason number two, they can never satisfy the just requirements of sin. And reason number three is because God is love. God said, here's the penalty, but I love you, so I'm going to pay the penalty. God demonstrated his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, sinners worthy of death, Christ dies for us. But just because he died, it's not automatic. His death is sufficient to save anyone, but it only becomes efficient for you who believe. Only those who looked at the bronze servant instantly lived. So again, verses 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. Join us tomorrow for part three and the conclusion of Sharing Christ with Others. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 787 
7478 and requesting program Sharing Christ with Others 021. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you would like to help sustain this ministry, click the Give button on our app or at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the Scriptures.